kindergarten through second grade are welcome to Children's Church, which they'll find through this door on the left side of the sanctuary, and uh, welcome to go there at this time. The rest of us, please turn in your Bibles, you can find a pew Bible in front of you, to Proverbs chapter 23, it's right near the center of the Bible, let's see, what page is that? Uh, Proverbs chapter 23, page 648, uh, 649, we'll be starting with verse 29. We still have our uh, missions faith promise thermometer up here, just as a reminder to us, it's not too late to turn in your missions faith promise card, and these are the cards we're using as we each pray about what God would have us contribute to our church's mission efforts. And then uh, this is for the the period between May and December, as we talked about. And then our missions committee will gather all of these cards and use those to uh, prepare a budget and to make commitments to our missionaries for the year to come. So you'll find those blue cards in the pew rack, and there's still time uh, for you to pray about what you would, uh, what your part would be, and to turn that card in with the offering, or you could just bring it up here and leave it at the end of the service. That'd be fine. So Proverbs 23, starting with verse 29 and going on to the end of the chapter. Proverbs is wisdom. And so here in the book of Proverbs, we come and we hear from the mouth of God wisdom about how we can live. And in this passage, it's wisdom applied to a very practical area of our lives, sometimes a very painful area sometimes a very divisive area of our lives, the use of alcohol, and especially excess use of alcohol, drunkenness. And so may this wisdom uh, prepare and equip you and protect you as you receive it. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Proverbs 23:29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? Let's bow in prayer. Father, we ask that you will warn us, equip us, teach us, and protect us through your word today. Father, we pray that we can hear the things that you have spoken. I pray that I will speak the things that come from your word because we don't just need opinions and ideas, but we need the word from your mouth by which we live. Through Jesus Christ we ask. Amen. When his wife found the malt liquor in the closet, it was all over for the second time. My friend... I'll call him Kevin, was the person who taught me what a a functional alcoholic is. 
I can still remember him looking at me with his, his calm face and his earnest voice and telling me that a functional alcoholic is an alcoholic who is able to function. He can hold down a job, he can be successful in business, and uh, he can be productive, even though he's dependent on alcohol and he's getting drunk every day. And my friend Kevin said, this is what he was. But the thing is that a functional alcoholic can function in some areas, maybe many areas, but there's always something in his life which is collapsing. And for Kevin, it was his family. And so his family got the worst end of his alcoholism. He was unreliable. He was un, you know, unfatherly. He wasn't loving and uh, wasn't demonstrating the kind of commitment. He was very, very hard to live with. He was crazy. And this is how it can be to live with an alcoholic. And his family saw the whole thing. So when his wife found the malt liquor, she told him, I've had it. She had been through the cycles, you know, the, the apologies, the begging for forgiveness and for another chance, the reforms, the changes, and then the relapses, the secrets, the lying, the deception, the full-blown drunkenness again. And she'd been around and around and she realized that this was not going to go anywhere but downhill. And so she told him, if you don't stop, I'm leaving. And so he stopped. God changed his life. And uh, something amazing happened and he really became, became hungry for God's word and, and he was renewed and he was growing spiritually. But I remember how uneasy I was when he told me that it was his plan to move his family and take them back to the place where he grew up, uh, find a new job, pull his kids out of their school and go through all the changes and stress and tension that it was going to mean for his family. And uh, sure enough, a couple years later, I don't know if it's being around his old friends and being around the old places, but he was back on the bottle. His wife found it again, and she gave him his, his ultimatum, and that was it. He didn't keep it. So he found himself on the other side of divorce court, lost his family, lost everything. He had hit rock bottom, and he had turned around, but then he took another slide. And the problem that we face is the problem of taking alcohol, taking drunkenness as something that we can control. We think we can be functional drinkers. We think we can be functional alcoholics. We think we can be functional sinners. We think that we can keep it under control and that alcohol is not really a threat, that we're going to be okay. And is there really any hope for a person like Kevin who just thinks he can do it, he thinks he can manage it, and it keeps sneaking up on him and getting him. Is there any hope for us that we're not just going to be overwhelmed? I think that this passage of Scripture gives us that hope. Because what this passage does is it warns us of the dangers of drunkenness and warns us to avoid drunkenness because drunkenness allows sin to take over. Avoid drunkenness because drunkenness allows sin to take over. And so we live in a spiritual battle. 
in the, the very first chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis, God comes and speaks to Cain and he warns the first murderer before he commits the first murder and he warns him about the spiritual battle that we all face and he tells Cain with these words, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must master it. And so that's the difficulty we face. We have an enemy crouching right at the door, ready to pounce on us as we go. And we think we're okay. We think we can handle it. Hey, the problem isn't bad up to now. I feel okay. How about another drink? So I want to warn you away from drunkenness because drunkenness will twist you. It will deceive you and it will ruin you. Drunkenness will twist you. Drunkenness lets sin twist us. So we want to look in verses 29 and 30 and see how this person becomes twisted. First, you know what happens. uh, We become what we hate and then we hate what we become and then we deny what we are. We become twisted people when we become uh, enslaved to alcohol. Alcohol just takes and turns our minds around and starts to make nonsense out of everything that we think and do and say. And so look at what this, uh, how this appears in verses 29 and 30. Um, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has redness uh, of eyes? That is, uh, needless bruises and bloodshot eyes. Bloodshot eyes like he's been weeping for the loss of his love. Who has all these terrible things? Irony of ironies. Unexpectedly, it's the person who devotes himself to the sweetest of the joys he can find, wine. And so verse 30, those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine, and so spending time there with the pleasure of wine, lingering over it, and becoming a connoisseur of the whole experience, going to sample uh, bowls of mixed wine. And so it's so strange that the very thing that brings joy becomes the thing that brings misery and sorrow. The very thing that should be something good becomes something evil for us. And that's what sin does. And so I want to tell you, first of all, as we begin, that wine is good. Will you turn with me back to Proverbs chapter 3? I don't know if I'm going to have a job tomorrow after this. (laughs) Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. The Bible gives a positive picture of of wine and of alcohol and uh, says a lot of good things about how it's a gift from God. So the Old Testament emphasizes that the creation is good, everything God made is good and is to be received with thanksgiving and, of course, used in moderation. So Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops, and God will provide a blessing. Here's the blessing. 
Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. And flip over to chapter 9. Chapter 9. It gets even more pointed here. Here at the first verses of chapter 9, we're presented with sort of the the personification of the book of Proverbs. The personification of wisdom. Here is wisdom inviting us to a banquet where wisdom will feed us the things that will change our lives, which will sustain us and give us life. And so wisdom is portrayed in chapter 9, these first verses, as a woman who has prepared a table and who summons the simple and the fools and those who have no learning to come get wisdom, come eat at her table. So what is her table? What is the table of a nice banquet that a person would want to go to? Uh, Look at verse 2. She has prepared uh, her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. And then verse 5. Come eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. So wine in the Old Testament, wine in the Bible is something good. So why is it that we become twisted by drunkenness? You know what happens is, if you're a discontented person and there's something wrong in life and you're not satisfied with the way things are and then you get drunk, then what you'll be is you'll be a discontented person who is drunk. And when you're drunk, then the filters are off and your discontentment starts to show. You don't feel so discontented but you still are what you are. And whatever caused your discontentment is still there. And it's still operating. And your life is still having all the same problems. And so when the drunk is over, you're still right back where you were. So it never really solves anything. It just makes you feel better for the moment. So if you're angry, and your anger has caused all sorts of terrible feelings within you, and you're you're just seething and writhing with anger, and then you drink and you feel better, and you get drunk, and your anger subsides, you're just an angry person who's drunk. And the anger comes out. And so the filters are off, and you become violent. And uh, so whatever the problem is, alcohol doesn't solve it. It only makes you drunk. Uh, It's not anything really, uh, you know, a great new insight. But it twists us so that the very thing which we think is going to be our escape plunges us deeper into our problem. And it exacerbates the problem that we're trying to avoid. And so if you've ever tried to talk to a twisted person, you're probably talking to an alcoholic. Someone who blames everybody else for all their problems, everybody else is doing the wrong things, and I'm always trying to be good, and everything always goes wrong, And uh, there are all these problems in the world. And why don't this? And why doesn't that? And, um, you know, it's probably someone who's just been running away from problems into the bottle. Um, uh, I've never never met such twisted people where you just don't know which end to pick up as those who have been sunk into alcohol. Um, And our whole country actually went through a period of becoming twisted around the 1830s. There are some things that happened around the early part of the 19th century 
that just changed the whole landscape of life. And one of those, you know, the big one, is the Industrial Revolution. And so industry went from being a little private cottage farm thing to becoming a massive organized thing in the cities. And what happened is commodities became cheaper and wages went up. And that's, those are good things, aren't they? One of the commodities which became much, much cheaper was alcohol. And wages were at a place where a person could work for one day and earn enough money to buy alcohol to make him drunk for an entire week. And so alcohol com consumption in the United States doubled during the 1830s. And uh, this was the time when the temperance movement began to grow and to build in the United States. And churches had a very prominent role in the temperance movement. But it was something which united people of all different kinds and beliefs and stripes. Conservative evangelical Christians and, and the more liberal Christians, they all agreed that alcohol was something bad and destructive because you would just look at society and see the way, the way things were going on. And so even the non-Christians, the free thinkers and uh, atheists of the day, they were all together that we need to oppose the, the prominence of alcohol in society. People would go to all kinds of functions and drink. Everything that, that you did, you had to pull out the booze because alcohol is good, right? Of course, in moderation. But it's a good thing, so we should enjoy it and enjoy more. And now it's cheap. We can enjoy more. And it began to take over. Families being ruined, workers unable to work, people dying from accidents, uh, things as simple as falls because they're drunk. And so someone wrote a book about the period, about the 1830s, and called it the Alcohol Republic. America had become twisted. It had become insane. And um, so something needed to be done. And this is, what this is what drunkenness will do to us. It will twist us. It will turn celebration and joy into misery and sorrow. What else does alcohol do? Alcohol will twist us. Drunkenness will allow sin to twist us. Drunkenness will allow sin to deceive us. So sin has a sharp hook and a stout cord and it needs some attractive bait to get us to bite. And uh, alcohol, wine, beer, mixed drinks, they're just the kind of attractive bait that many of us need to get us to bite on sin. Look at Proverbs 23, verses 31 to 32 and see how uh, drunkenness deceives So we're warned, Proverbs 23:31. Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. So there's this temptation to gaze, to look at the, at the wine. There's a temptation to enjoy its sparkling and its color, all the sensations of the experience, which have all the associations with the pleasures that we've had from it, and then to delve deeper and deeper into those pleasures without realizing that there is the hook, there's the barb. And, uh, you know, this is the same thing that 
people experience with other kinds of drugs besides alcohol, that there are what we call triggers. The experiences that are associated with the whole set of routines and activities involved with imbibing the pleasurable thing and becoming drunk and overwhelmed by inebriation. And so we need to, we need to be on guard. Don't gaze. Don't look. Because alcohol hampers judgment. You think you can you think you can understand what alcohol is by entering the experience. You think you can understand drunkenness from the inside. You think you can just step into that pleasure, into that experience, and then see what it's like and figure out what you're going to do. But the strange thing about it is that it is an experience which hampers your ability to evaluate itself or to evaluate anything. Alcohol hampers judgment. Uh, you know, this is why uh, just a minimum amount of drinks is all that you're allowed to have before you drive and you'll be over the legal uh, blood alcohol limit because you, you're not safe behind a wheel. It's worse than, uh, than talking on a cell phone or maybe almost as bad. Uh, in, in the year 1998, the National Institute of Health estimated that our economy uh, spent huge amounts of money uh, because of the, the losses due to alcohol use in healthcare, lost worker productivity and lost wages, uh, motor vehicle accidents, crime, fires started, um, administration of all these things. Uh, almost $200 billion, that was 1998. I'm sure the figure is up higher now. $200 billion, that's a piece of money. And that's not counting the deaths the children affected, the, uh, all the effects of alcohol and what it does. Probably a quarter of all traffic fatalities are caused by alcohol, somewhere, some significant percentage. About 3% of the American population are active alcoholics. About 5% have um, alcohol drinking problems. 5% of 300 million, what's that? 15 million people with drinking problems. Serious drinking problems. About one in every 12 marriages ends up in divorce because of the tensions and struggles originating with alcohol and drunkenness and drinking. It hampers judgment. And so we get ourselves into all kinds of terrible situations. Um, don't evaluate drinking by test driving it. Don't test drive drugs. Just read the specs. Just look at the label. That's enough. Don't step into the experience in order to decide if this is something good for you or not good for you. But take the wisdom that you receive even here from Scripture. It's, it's an old experience. It's been around for a long time. It looks good. It sparkles. It feels good. It bites like a snake. Alcohol hampers our judgment, so we become deceived. I, uh, one afternoon when I was living and working in Kenya as a missionary, I got in the, uh, in the car on a Sunday afternoon, and I headed off to a little village called Miadene, down the dirt roads. I was looking for a pastor, and I wanted to organize some 
evangelistic outreach. So I would, I would get myself into these situations now and then. All I have is the name of the pastor, Silas Morethi, and uh, the town, and uh, you know some vague directions about you know which end of town he lives on, and I'm going to go try to find this guy. And so, and I would do it, and, and I found his house. You know, some people gave me you know some help because everybody knows everybody down there. So. So I found his house. His wife says, oh, well, they're in the marketplace. They're doing some open-air preaching this afternoon. So I go to the marketplace, and sure enough, there he is up on a little, a little pile of dirt, a little hillock, and, uh, and uh, some of the members of the church around, he's got the loudspeaker, and he's preaching the gospel. And, you know, people are kind of hanging back under the eaves of the shops and this sort of thing. You know, a, a small number, of, a little crowd of people listening. But there's one guy who's just totally into it, totally oblivious to anybody who's, who's watching or what they're going to think or what they're going to say. And he's there and he's listening to everything and he's answering back and he's talking. So I took a look at this guy. Yeah, shabby clothes, kind of real dirty, short guy. And, um, you know, then I notice he's kind of staggering. He's obviously drunk out of his mind. So he's the, the character that you just find in, in all these villages here and there, the town drunk. And uh, so he's just listening to this sermon and he's getting into it. The time comes for Pastor Moravi to really drive home the message that you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins. Turn to the Savior. And so he asks people to come up and I'll pray for you. And like a shot, this guy, he's up there. I mean, he, he wouldn't even wait. You know, he's up there, he's waving his arms, he's crying out, you know, and he wants to be prayed for. And so Pastor Moretti, you know, prays for this guy. It kind of spoils the whole meeting, you know, and nobody else is going to come forward. And so he prays for this guy and um, promises that he'll, he'll follow up with him. And uh, so then I met with Pastor Moretti and we, we talked and I, I asked him, you know, what do you think of this guy? And he says, well, yeah, uh, well, I know the guy. And, uh, you know, these, these drunks, you know, they come and they hear the gospel and you, you just never know if anything's taking hold. But I'll follow up with them. And I've had, I had that experience so many times. And you share the gospel with someone and they're, they're an alcoholic or they're drunk and it just overwhelms them and they're so moved and there are genuine tears coming down their eyes and oh, they're turning from their sins and they're so grateful to you for bringing the gospel and when the alcohol wears off, so does the gospel. And there's nothing solid in there for the good news to take hold of because drunkenness has just allowed Satan to have his way in their hearts and to blind their eyes so that they don't see the good news. They don't see their desperate need and they just get an emotional response and they get all charged up, but nothing takes root. What else does drunkenness do? Where does it lead? It twists us and deceives us, but where does it take us? Drunkenness will ruin, will ruin you. So drunkenness lets sin take control to ruin us. And so this is what we see here in these last few verses, starting with verse 30, 33. Uh, Proverbs 23, 33. Your eyes will see strange sights, and your mind imagine confusing things. And now we keep sliding down the slide. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on the top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up 
so I can take another drink. Don't worry, you'll feel it sooner or later. You can't get away from it. It's your life that's being ruined. So, it's a gradual slide. The thing about being drunk is that you don't feel the steps as you go down the, da- the staircase. Each one hits you, but uh, the, the wine softens it, and the alcohol makes it a very smooth slide. You don't notice that you've gone another step lower and another. And so it's very slippery until you hit rock bottom. There's that phrase, rock bottom. A lot of former alcoholics will talk about their rock bottom. That experience where they reached a place where they came to themselves, where they realized they had sunk so low that it shook them to the core of their being and they, they realized they just had to give up. They had to get help. They had to turn and go out of the way that they were in and find a better way. The thing about rock bottom is that it's not really made of rock. And you get to rock bottom and you can still go down. You can still go deeper. And the real rock bottom is death. And short of that, alcohol will continue to let sin control and drunkenness will continue to ruin your life until you hit that rock bottom below which you cannot go. So, um, some people are more prone to alcohol addiction than others. Maybe you're a person who can take a lot of alcohol. Maybe you're not. Don't try to find out. Don't try to test yourself. It's nothing to be proud of. Maybe some of the best people are the ones who are more prone to alcohol. Who knows? But don't get yourself uh, sucked into the whole thing of, of trying it and testing it out and seeing how much you can take and, and checking yourself out because you can get yourself sucked in before you know it. Just avoid drunkenness. It's just dangerous. There's a... Uh, Uh, psychiatrist and uh, a neurologist and brain scientist in the 1950s who did some very interesting experiments. Some of them are sort of on the edge of ethics. But uh, what he did is he would implant an electrode in different parts of the brain of of these animals. He started with cats and rats and then monkeys and things like this. So he would plant an electrode. and What he was doing was mapping out the brain because he would put the electrode into different places in the brain and put an electrical charge, you know, a small electrical stimulation, and observe the results. And uh, he identified the most potent pleasure center in the brain, uh, the posterior hypothalamus. And uh, what he found is he, he could, he, he developed this device, by the way. So he would uh, put the, the electrode in the brain and he would mount a, a battery pack and a radio receiver on the animal so that the animal could go around and he could just push a button over here and stimulate that part in the brain. And so he could do all these wonderful experiments. And uh, so one day he handed the monkey the button. 5,000 times per hour. You know, the, the stimulation would only last for half a second. So that monkey was constantly on that button, you know, getting that stimulation. And you bring food, you bring water, the monkey's hungry, the monkey needs everything, but he doesn't stop. Because if he feels hungry, what is he going to do to make himself feel better? Go and eat food? But he'd have to leave alone his button. 
So he's back here pounding the button. I'm hungry. So he pounds it and he feels good. He feels good. And then does he want to drink water? He's thirsty. But this makes him feel better than drinking water. So bring a female monkey. Bring whatever. Nothing will get him off of that button. And that's what happens to us. I have the bottle. It always satisfies. It never lets me down. It always comes in just when I need it. It always makes me feel better. And so I don't turn and do the things that I need to do. I don't take care of myself. But I come into ruin. And my spiritual senses are gone. So I don't recognize who and what I am a man created by God to live for God, under God, and to worship and love Him. But all my senses are focused on just my bottle and what I've got. You become the monkey with the button. You think that you can't be ruined. You think you're a different kind. You think that alcoholism is something for those other people. You don't have a blood relative who's an alcoholic. You know, brain scientists have come up with a new term to describe what they think human nature is like. Maybe it's not a very new term. Plasticity. You can change. Your brain changes, you change. And you change and your brain can change. And there's some plasticity. So maybe you didn't used to be vulnerable to alcoholism, but you started taking that funny medication, didn't you? and uh, you got hit upside the head when the, the mule kicked you or whatever it was. Uh, you had that illness and uh, there were those treatments and some surgery and who knows what all. People change. So don't take it for granted that it can't get you. So avoid drunkenness because it's dangerous. It can get the best of us. Look in Proverbs chapter 31, the last, um, the last chapter of the book. And I wanted to end by showing us just this one warning about how even the best of us can succumb to alcoholism and to drunkenness and to the sin that is unleashed. Proverbs 31, the first few verses are warnings of a mother, instructions of a mother for her son, the prince, to warn him uh, about what really is his responsibility as a king and uh, some things he needs to avoid. And look what she says in verse 4. Proverbs 31, 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, not for rulers to crave beer, lest they drink and forget what the law decrees and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Give beer to those who are perishing, wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. It is not for you, fathers, to desire wine. It is not for you, mothers, to crave beer. You have a responsibility. It is not for you, O oh, citizens, better than kings, citizens of the United States, to be sunk into alcohol use and addiction. But you need to guard yourself, guard your heart, keep your mind on the things that you, that you have as your responsibilities. It is not for you, young person, with a future ahead of you, which you need to prepare for, which you need to grow for, 
It is not for you to crave wine and to immerse yourself in alcohol. But you need to keep self-control and keep a sound mind as you move ahead in life. So there was another day, another afternoon. I was driving down one of those dusty roads, the sun shining brightly. I was trying to get from Mikanduri back to the, the main road and uh, the paved road. And I wasn't quite sure how I was supposed to go. And uh, there was a guy wanting a lift. So I stopped and picked him up, figured he could get the ride and I could get some directions. And so he jumps in the car and says, Oh, I'm so glad I, I got to meet you. I, I know your car. I know who you are. I know that you go around showing the Jesus film and that you're, uh, you know, you're, you're preaching the gospel. I love the gospel. I said, Oh, great. I got, I got a good guy here to, to ride with. So I said, Well, tell me, how did you get saved? And he says, you see this road? I used to walk down this road at night, stone drunk. And the the thieves would find me and they would beat me up and they would knock me out and they would take my shoes and my my money and my my coat, my hat, my belt, my trousers. They would leave me, you know, sleeping in the road. I'd wake up in the morning and blunder home and I'd go right back to it the next day. That was my life. Until one day... I heard someone preaching the gospel over in the market there at Miadene. And, uh, what? And, uh, what church do you go to? Uh, Miadene Baptist Church. And I looked across. It's the guy! <laughs> it's, it's the drunk! His clothes are cleaner. This is he, the short guy. Yeah, with that, I knew him. It had been a couple years. But here he was. He was a deacon in the church. And he was faithfully following the Lord. God works in people's lives. If alcohol has sunk its barbed hooks into you and is pulling you down to the grave, you can be saved. You're sliding down and there's nothing to hold on to. If Jesus could tell Peter to walk on water, you can get up out of your alcohol and follow Him. You can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace is sufficient. Turn from your sin. You hear the word of God. God is working in your heart today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. His grace is sufficient for me. It's sufficient for you. There is no sin that's too black or too deep. There's nothing you've done that makes your guilt too much for his blood to wash away. We're coming to the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating the broken body of our Lord, broken for us. Who were lost, and the shed blood which takes away our sins. Our, one of our elders, Eric Mello, is going to come and lead us in observing the Lord's Supper. Eric, will you come? The verse jumped out at me when uh, Seth preached that message, that great message. Um, in Ephesians, Paul is talking to the church and he says, In chapter 5, verse 18, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And I love that verse, because it just points out that alcohol is a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. That we have the Spirit in us that replaces all those things that we we seek to find in, in other substances. So we have such a great the greatest thing to have, which is the Holy Spirit, which blows away anything this world has to offer. So now we're coming to the Lord's table. And our Lord 
Jesus Christ instituted this celebration on the night he was betrayed. He gathered his disciples together to celebrate the Passover meal. And as he served the bread in the cup, he explained that the bread was a symbol of his body that was about to be broken for our sins. And the cup was a symbol of his blood that was going to be poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And he he commanded us as believers to eat and drink in remembrance of him. So this is why we celebrate communion. This is the Lord's table and is open to anyone who knows Christ as their Savior. If you do not yet know Christ as your Savior, we ask that you please participate by observation. So now I'd like to invite the elders to come forward. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and 24, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I ask her, Pastor, please give thanks for the broken body of Christ. sins. As we commemorate that today, we ask for your uh, forgiveness and come humbly before you in this uh, celebration and remembrance. We ask that uh, we might uh, be faithful servants of yours in remembrance of what you did for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. you to spend this time now in silent prayer and let us reflect on the great price that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ paid for the forgiveness of our sins. In the book of Isaiah chapter 53 this was written in 760 B.C amazing prophecy of the Savior. It reads, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. Christ's body broken for us. Let's eat together. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25-26 reads, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Can I have the elders come forward? And Bob Bells, would you give thanks for the blood of Christ? Father, as we come before you this morning, as I come before you this morning, I come as a sinner saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for this remembrance of what the great sacrifice was that you paid for me, for the power in the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me from all of my sin from all of the weaknesses that I have in my life and for strength to live another day to honor and serve you and I ask this in Jesus name
words to the song Majesty. I'd invite you to join with us. Of your 
just as I am, empty-handed, alive in your hands. Here I am. Here I Pastor Seth, can you come up and close? In the early church, the Lord's Supper was not just a little ritual meal like this, but it was held in, con- in conjunction with something like a church potluck. And our fellowship committee has put together a little plan for us to get together in homes uh, called Reservations for Eight, just eight people in the homes of one of the elders, one of the leaders of the church. And uh, we'd love to have you uh, come for a little, a little potluck gathering and get to know some of the people that you're worshiping with and fellowship together. Uh, even if you don't know the Lord, just to come and, and share together with us a nice meal. And so you could email the church office about that or you could go downstairs in the fellowship hall and the sign-up board is down there and uh, you can sign up for that. Well, stand and receive the benediction. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen.